0: Last Sunday, a number of you were not in church because we had an epic blizzard going on. We really did. In fact, we had the lowest attendance last Sunday that we have had in probably four years. First service, second service, both. It was, well, I don't want to use the word dismal, it was just low that's the best way to say it. Now, a number of you were here as well, and so we're very grateful for your presence as you braved the snow, but it has left me in a quandary for today's message because, you see, last Sunday was part one of a part two sermon series. And so I wondered, as many people as were gone, how am I going to get into part two when they weren't here to hear part one? So I came up with two different ideas. The first is we're going to read the passage that we looked at last week. I don't want to be redundant for those of you that were here, but I'll ask you for the grace to just let others catch up. And the second comes from a story that I wrote this week to kind of capture what we were looking at last week. I'm going to ask Tina to come and take care of part one. She's going to read for us from 2 Kings chapter 5, starting in verse 1. If you want to open your Bibles to that passage, you can follow along. And then I'll come share the story with you. 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 1 through 14.
1: Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his Lord. Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel and the king of Syria said, go now and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman, my servant." Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away, saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to meet me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Pharphar the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Let's pray together.
0: Father in heaven, we're grateful for stories like this in the Bible. They're very insightful. They allow us to see not only the characters of which they are written about, but they allow us to see ourselves if we will look closely enough. I'm praying this morning that we will look closely. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I told you just a minute ago that I wanted Tina to read that for you so that you could catch up with what we had looked at last week. And then I also told you that I had set at my computer and written a story to kind of capture what we went over last week. This is not biblical. This comes from my imagination, so please accept it as such. I wanted to get into the story and look from a couple of different perspectives, those of Naaman's wife and the little servant girl from Samaria. So I gave them both names. The Bible does not do that. I did. So again, this is from my imagination. I imagine that Naaman's wife might have been named Selah, a good Syrian name. And the servant girl, once she came to live with them, might have been given an equally significant Syrian name. So I called her Gada. Listen to the story, would you? Naaman is home. Selah said it with great excitement in her voice. She and her servant girl, Gada, were crushing chickpeas for the evening meal. Many of Naaman's men were coming for dinner, but now they would switch menus. She would put on a feast to celebrate his return. Selah made a mental note to send Gada to the fields to bring in two goats and then to the orchard to pick fruit for the evening meal. But for now, she wanted only to hear Naaman's report. They had lived a long time without hope and even longer without touch. She longed for her husband to hold her close like he had before the disease. If Gada was right, things would be different now. This young girl they had taken in spoke often of the prophet's power. He had restored water, found sunken axe heads, restored a foul stew, and brought to life the once dead. Surely he could heal this wicked disease. She kicked over a bucket of peas as she ran to see her love. As she got close, he did something he hadn't done for years. He extended his arms to her. Though her heart wanted to run all the way to him, she stopped short. Years of warnings from doctors, seers, and priests had convinced her to keep her distance. When the dust settled on her sandals, Naaman pulled up his sleeve and showed her smooth skin, no disease, no sores, no pus, and in his eyes, no shame, no death. He grabbed her and he told her everything King Joram's response, how he had called his men to war and was ready to fight at the drop of a hat. He told about Elisha's call to come to the king. The command to wash in the Jordan River, his refusal of the filthy water, the challenge of his faithful friends that convinced him to step into the filthy water. He told her how after the first dunking, he looked and there were still open sores, but how on the second, the drainage stopped. On the third, the wounds began to heal and how by the seventh, there was no sign of leprosy on his body. He was healed. It's a miracle only found in Israel. The God of that land is the God of healing and redemption. I have much to tell you, but first I need to find Gala, Naaman said, as he slid his wife out of his arms. She's in the orchard. I'll get her for you. No, Naaman said, I'll go to her. He swung his leg back over his horse, a beautiful white stallion. He grabbed the lead of the long-eared mules behind him and rode to the grove of trees behind their fields. As he approached, Gala found a familiar anxiety. It rose deep within her each time the master came. She supposed it remained with her from the first time they met. She was hiding behind the walls of her grandfather's home when the Syrians had come. Her father was with the fighting men. Her mother died giving birth to her brother, and he followed soon after, falling prey to the desert cough that had taken many that year. Naaman had found her, and with a powerful command instructed one of his men to take her. For a hundred miles, she rode behind the warrior. He said nothing to her. They just rode. Before Naaman and the other warriors went to see King Ben-Hadad, he took her to her new home, his home. He presented her to his wife as a gift. She remembered wondering how a person could be a gift. Suddenly, Gala realized she was a slave and would live her life as such. Though they were kind to her, especially her mistress, she was still a slave. The sight of her captor caused her to grow anxious What if the prophet had refused to help? What if the sores were still there? She grew past anxious and without cause was now afraid. Naaman jumped off his horse, sword swinging by his side, his armor creaking as he came towards her. She stood with the basket of fruit in her hand, figs falling as she began to shake. He reached out to her, something he had never done. He pulled her close to his face and kissed her cheek. She wasn't sure what to do next, so she did nothing. Naaman spoke. Gala, I have never asked, what is your given name? Ariella, she replied. What does it mean, he asked? Lioness of God. Those were words she had heard her grandfather say many times when she was small, though she hadn't thought of them in years. He would run his hands through her hair and whisper to her, you are Ariella, a lioness of God. Fitting, Naaman said, may I call you Ariella? She just shook her head Yes. Ariella, I thought I had brought you here as a gift for my wife, but you were Yahweh's gift to me. You were right. The prophet has power. He brought healing to my body. You were the lioness of God that spoke of his truth and power. I can never repay you for what you have done. Ariella didn't know what to say or what to do, so she said, our God heals. Naaman went on to tell her that after he had been to the Jordan, he chose to return to the prophet and to the king. He wanted to thank both of them for their kindness. He asked the king about her father. He had died in battle a few years ago. He rode past her grandfather's home, the place he had taken her from. There is a tiny burial plot behind the house. Both of your grandparents are laid to rest there. I want you to have your life back. You are no longer a servant in our home. I will take you back to your homeland or you can remain here as my daughter. It's your choice." She chose to remain the daughter of a great redeemed man, a choice she never regretted. As for Selah, she asked Naaman about the baskets of dirt on the mules, and he told her the rest of the story. It sounds like this. And we're going to have to go back into 2 Kings chapter 5 to get the rest of the story. We'll jump out of the fictional, and we'll get back into exactly what the Bible says. There are some great things for us to see in the rest of Naaman's story. In particular, there are three great responses to grace that we need to see. And this is where you need to look very closely and determine where you're at in the midst of these three responses. We're going to start with Elisha's. If you're open to Second Kings chapter 5, we're going to read just a couple of verses. Verse 15. Then he returned to the man of God, meaning Naaman. He had come out of the Jordan River. He was cleansed of the leprosy and he returned to Elisha, he and all his company. And he came and stood before him, and he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel, so accept now a present from your servant. But he said, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Now turn back with me to verse 1, and look at what the Bible says about Naaman one more time. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now, for the most part, that is Naaman's resume. You can now add something new to it. Not only was he a mighty man of valor, not only was he in good standing with his master, not only had he been a leper now cured of it, but he is also a believer in Jehovah. And that's exactly what he was telling Elisha when he came back to him. When he made the declaration, I now know that there is no other God in all of the land except the God of this land, the God of Samaria, the God of Israel. He was declaring that he was no longer in pursuit of other gods. He might have been declaring that he was no longer in pursuit of truth. He found it. He found it in Yahweh. And his life was forever changed by what he had discovered. But it was an interesting process that he had to go through to get there. It's one that's very familiar to a lot of people. I like the way Dwight Moody sums it up. He says, here's the process that Naaman went through. He lost his temper, and then he lost his pride, and then he lost his leprosy. That's the process. For people that are stubborn in coming to Christ... The process looks very much like that. At some point, for some reason, and that reason can be pretty much unknown, they will at some point lose their temper, angry at God for something that has happened. And once they have lost their temper with God, it will become necessary listen, it will become necessary to lose their pride. And for every person that will come to know Jesus, we will all have to do the same thing. We will have to lose our pride because to hold on to it says that we don't need Him. To hold on to our pride says that we can save ourselves. To hold on to our pride says that we have no need for a Savior because we have the ability to do it on our own. Naaman had to get rid of that. When he was screaming about having to go to the Jordan River because the, the rivers in and around Damascus in Syria were so much better, cleaner, bigger, brighter. That was his pride speaking. But his friends confronted that pride and he surrendered it. He lost his temper and then he lost his pride. And he went into the water and lost his leprosy. Now, that's Naaman's part of the story. After it was over and he saw that all the sores were gone on his arms, his legs, his chest, his face, the leprosy was gone, he wanted to do something that every person should want to do. He wanted to go back and say thank you. So he rode back 30-some-odd miles. He rode back to find Elisha so that he could say thank you. Now, part of what Naaman discovered was a grace that changed his life. But he also discovered a relationship that was going to require some time. It wasn't something that was just going to come instantly. And here's how we know that. When he got back to Elisha, he wanted to pay him. He wanted to pay him for what he had done. Now, it's called a gift, but he wanted to pay him. He's still holding on to his own power, his own pride. It's fallen away, no question about it, but he is still holding on to it. So Elisha responded the only way he could. Did you catch it? It was there in verse 16. Listen to it again. As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he, meaning Elisha, refused. Elisha was not a wealthy man. What Naaman was offering him could have changed his life. But Elisha said, I won't have any part of it. You take that back to Syria with you. I don't want it. Don't you leave it here. He refused. He said, no. The reason he said no is godly. At its core, it is godly. Had Elisha received the gift, the glory for Naaman's healing would have come and rested on Elisha. It would have been taken away from God. And Naaman's growth would have stopped right there. Elisha knew it. He was actually teaching a New Testament principle in an Old Testament application. He had received grace. He had freely given grace. He had helped somebody understand what God could do for him, and he refused, he refused to be paid for it because that would have changed everything. Let me show you the New Testament principle. Keep your finger here in 2 Kings, but go with me to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2. These are familiar words to people that have a long history in the church. They're good words. Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. The Apostle Paul writes this. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now that's something that we have to know about grace That's something we have to know about salvation. Grace is the great equalizer. Because you see, grace does not care about money. It does not care about power. Grace does not care about position. It does not care about background. Grace does not care one bit about the things that the world cares about. Grace comes to us as a gift from God, given to us freely through His Son, Jesus Christ. You cannot buy it. You cannot work for it. You cannot barter for it. You cannot steal it. All you can do is accept it. It is the great equalizer. If you ever want to see that at play, then go to a number of funerals and look at the people that are laying in the casket. Death is also a great equalizer. Everyone faces it. And no matter how much money people in the family want to put into the casket of the deceased, that money will rot in the ground right along with the bones, the skin, and the flesh of the person because that money doesn't matter to God. Position doesn't matter. Power doesn't matter. None of those things that we just listed mattered. Naaman needed to discover that, and Elisha helped him do it. And part of what Elisha was helping him understand is that the glory is not mine, Elisha's. It's not his. The glory belongs to God. In the book of Ephesians, the first chapter, the Apostle Paul would show that to us at least three times. Let me show it to you. Just turn over one chapter. Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 3. We read, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, "...who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will." Now listen to verse 6. "...to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved." There's the first time that Paul helps us understand that when God saves someone, it is for His glory, not ours. Verse 7. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Now there's number two. Twice in this passage, we have seen Paul say that when God saves a person, it is for his glory. No one else's. It is for his glory. Verse 13, in him, you also, when you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Now listen, verse 14. Here's number three, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. That's what Elisha was teaching. This is about God. This isn't about me. Naaman, pay attention. This is about God. This isn't about me. God healed you. And so I cannot accept one dime of your gift. I can't accept the clothes. I can't accept the silver. You take that back to Syria with you. Elisha's response to grace is beautiful because he never made it selfish. He never made it about him. Though he could have once at least. He never did. And that sets the stage for these other two responses. So let's go back into 2 Kings. We're going to take a close look at Naaman's response. Picking up in chapter 5, verse 17. Then Naaman said, If not, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth. For from now on your servant will not offer burnt offerings or sacrifice to any god but the Lord. In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes into the house of Rimmon to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Rimmon. when I bow myself in the house of Rimmon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. He said, meaning Elisha, to him, go in peace. A couple of really intriguing things happen here. Let me call them both out for you. In order to see the first one, you need to understand the culture that Naaman lived in. The people during that time believed that the gods of foreign lands lived in the earth of those lands, lived in the dirt. To leave the dirt of a foreign land meant that you were leaving the gods of that land. So when Naaman asked Elisha for two mule loads of dirt, he was asking for the opportunity to take God back with him. He had now discovered not only a grace that would save him, but he had discovered a relationship, an ongoing, eternal relationship with God, and he didn't want to walk away from it. That's what this request was. In essence, he was saying, I want God to always be close to me, and I don't live here. I don't want to have to come back to Israel every time I need to offer sacrifices under Old Testament law. I don't want to have to come back to Jerusalem. I want God to be close to me. So he says to Elisha, let me take a couple mule loads worth of dirt, and here's what I will do with it. I am going to build an altar, and there I will offer the sacrifices. It will forever be with me, because Naaman has already declared, the Lord of this land is the only Lord there is. The God of Israel is the only God there is, and I will only worship Him. This is a cool idea. So he takes all this dirt, holy dirt if you will, back home with him to Syria and he builds an altar in his backyard. Can you imagine the conversation starter that would be? Every time people came over for a barbecue and they saw this huge altar that you could lay a bowl on, this huge altar that was elevated in his yard, built on this dirt of a different color. Can't you imagine people saying, now explain this to me? it makes perfect sense to me. I have a neighbor that has a fire pit in his backyard unlike anyone I have ever seen in my life. It, too, is elevated. Tina and I had gone over and had dinner with them, and afterwards we were sitting outside around the fire pit, and, of course, I had to ask, what's up with the fire pit? And this is what he said to me. I first saw one like this in Africa, and I brought the idea home with me. Same concept. This is what Naaman had seen in Israel, and he's bringing it home. He said, I'm going to need at least two mule loads worth of dirt. Now, there are small mules and there are big mules. I'm guessing because he was a man of prominence that the mules that traveled with him were big mules. They could carry a lot of dirt hung over the saddles and baskets. He takes it back and he builds this thing so that God could always be near. And so he could always have an opening to share what God had done for him. That's what that altar would be. It would be not only his place of worship, but it would be his declaration of the one that he worshipped. That's pretty cool. I might offer to you that there should be something in your yard that declares your relationship with God. Wouldn't that be cool? If every Christian had something in their yard, in the center of it, that was this conversation piece that any time somebody was there, they'd say, what's that about? And all of a sudden, the doors open? That's what Naaman had. So Elisha granted him, The two mule loads of dirt. And then Naaman asked for another favor. This one is really interesting. Really interesting. He said, when I go home, I still work for King Ben-Hadad. He's getting up there in years. and I am his chief bodyguard. I am the protector of the king. When he goes into the temple of Rimen, I have to go with him. He'll lean on my arm. And when he bows before the altar of Rimen, this false god... I will have to bow as well. I am asking you, man of God, that God not hold me accountable for what I have to do for my job. Now, isn't that intriguing? I'm asking that God not hold me accountable for what I have to do. Elisha says, go in peace. He granted him what he had asked for. Go in peace were words of blessing. You go in peace. This will be all right. God will not hold you accountable. Now, I want to remind you that Naaman was a man of political prominence. He was a man of power. He was the leader of the Syrian army. He was second in command in all of that nation. He had political responsibilities that he had to do. There was no other way around it. He lived in a culture that was not friendly to the things of God, and he had to appreciate that culture. He had to be involved in that culture. We are very critical of our politicians, and I am probably among the worst, that are very critical of our politicians when they go to foreign lands and they have to do things that I don't agree with. And I always think to myself, why? Why would they do that? That is just wrong. That is against what we believe, and and there is no way that God could honor that. Well, they are being respectful of the culture that they are in. And so maybe rather than judging them, we need to recognize that they're in a difficult spot. Rather than bringing accusation against them, in some of those applications, we have to realize that anything else that they would do would be entirely offensive and any opportunity that we might have as a nation would be shut off. That's what Naaman was asking of Elisha. I want to have influence with the king and it's going to require me to do some things that I don't want to do and I don't want God to hold me guilty for doing it. And Elisha said, go in peace. We should pay attention to this. We really should. Now, mind you, that is not license to sin. That is not God's Word telling us that if you have ministry among people that are doing things offensive to the Lord, you go join them and get involved in what they're doing and that way you won't offend them. That's not it at all. This is cultural application. But it's really kind of intriguing as you look at it because Elisha said, go in peace. Now that's Naaman's response to the grace that he received. He found a relationship with God. Elisha's response to the grace that he bestowed was to give credit to the Lord. Naaman's response was to develop an ongoing forever relationship with God. Let me show you a third response. This one comes from the servant of the prophet Elisha. His name is Gehazi. He has worked with Elisha for a long time. They know each other well. He knows Elisha and Elisha knows him. This is what happens. Picking up in the last part of verse 19. But when Naaman had gone from him a short distance, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, See, my master has spared this Naaman the Syrian in not accepting from his hand what he brought. As the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. So Gehazi followed Naaman. Now, we're going to stop there for just a second. Here's in essence, what Gehazi was saying. This isn't fair. Elisha just healed Naaman, and Naaman offered us all this money. Elisha had a servant named Gehazi. Follow the process. He was a servant. He got a portion of the things that Elisha had. And so when Elisha was offered great riches, Gehazi was thinking a portion of that would have been mine. I might not have to live as a servant any longer. I could buy my own land, build my own house, live in luxury like everybody else does. This isn't fair. You ever said, hey, no fair? It's exactly what Gehazi just said, and he took matters into his own hands. Verse 21. So Gehazi followed Naaman. When Naaman saw someone running after him, he got down from the chariot to meet him and said, is all well? And he said, all is well. My master has sent me to say "'There have just now come to me from the hill country of Ephraim two young men of the sons of the prophets. "'Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of clothing.' "'And Naaman said, Be pleased to accept two talents.' "'And he urged him and tied up two talents of silver "'and two bags with two changes of clothing "'and laid them on two of his servants. "'And they carried them before Gehazi. "'And when he came to the hill, he took them from their hand "'and put them in the house, and he sent the men away, "'and they departed. "'He went in and stood before his master, "'and Elisha said to him, Where have you been, Gehazi?' And he said, your servant went nowhere. But he said to him, did not my heart go when the man turned from his chariot to meet you? Was it a time to accept money and garments, olive orchards and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male servants and female servants? Therefore the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and to your descendants forever. So he went out from his presence, a leper like snow. Gehazi's response to grace is totally different. What he discovered when he was confronted with grace, was a slippery slope. One he could not get off of, and one that led to judgment. A lot of people have found that exact same thing, a slippery slope. Gehazi's began when he broke the 10th commandment. If you're not familiar with that, let me show it to you. We're going to go to Exodus chapter 20. That's where the 10 commandments are listed the most comprehensively. The 10th commandment is found in Verse 17, this is what the Bible says. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. That was the very first mistake, the one that sent Gehazi sliding down the slope. He was coveting. He was coveting what Naaman had brought and what could have been Elisha's. When that happened, And Gehazi didn't close the door to it. It set in motion a series of events. It set in motion a series of broken commandments that led to the judgment. Let me show them to you. The second commandment that he broke was the second commandment. It's found in verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Now, the last part of that verse is very telling and very significant, so you hold on to it. Here it is again. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless, who takes his name in vain. Now, you might say, when did he take his name in vain? Well, that's pretty simple. That is found in verse 20. Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, See, my master has spared this name the Syrian in not accepting from his hand what he brought. Now, listen. As the Lord lives... I will run after him and get something from him. That's where he took his name in vain. That's what it means to take the name of the Lord in vain. It means to attach God's name to something God wouldn't approve of. We do that through foul language. We do that through swearing. We do that through putting God's name into something and spiritualizing it to make ourselves feel better about it. That's taking the Lord's name in vain. And at the moment that Gehazi said, as the Lord lives, I will not let this happen. He took the Lord's name in vain, and God said, I will not hold you guiltless for this, and he didn't. In the process of all of that, two more commands were broken. Back in Exodus chapter 20, you can see them very plainly. Verse 16 says, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not lie. That's what that means. And Gehazi was a liar. Did you catch his lie? When he got to Naaman, he said, two of the sons of the prophets have come down out of the hill country and they have asked my master Elisha for a couple of changes of clothing and some money. They're running a little short this month. And so is there any way that you could help out? That was a whopper of a lie. That was a huge lie. And he painted that picture without pause. He just came and spewed it out in front of Naaman, and he did it in such a convincing way that Naaman said, not only will I do that, but I'll send my servants to carry it back for you. I don't want you to be burdened by it. He was bearing false witness. And then he broke the fourth commandment, the fourth of his commandments, verse 15 of Exodus 20, you shall not steal. And at that point, everything was already in motion, and Gehazi's fate was sealed. Because the Lord said, I will not hold you guiltless for this. Gehazi should have known better. He'd been with Elisha for a long time. Gehazi should have known better because he had seen what God had done through his master. Gehazi should have known better because he should have known God. He was from the land of Israel. He grew up there in the land that Naaman now coveted. The land that Naaman wanted to take home with him. The land that Naaman had loaded on his mules. That was Gehazi's home. This should have never happened. But it did because he went over the edge of the slippery slope and he just kept on going. He did not let grace do its work in his life. That was the problem. And it all began in a disastrous place, one that Jesus would warn us about. Listen to this. Don't turn with me. Just listen. From Luke chapter 12, verse 15. Jesus said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Jesus himself would warn us, don't go over the edge like Gehazi did. There's a reason that the 10th commandment is the exclamation point to the other nine and it has to do with coveting because God knows that that is the entry point. So he saved it for the last and said, don't you covet because that'll get you in trouble and it'll lead you down a path that you cannot get off of. And that's what happened for Gehazi. It happens for a lot of people when they are confronted with grace. In fact, there are just two responses to grace. That's all there is. We'll take Elisha's part of the story out because he was responding to a grace that he had given away, a grace that he had helped somebody else find. But Naaman's response and Gehazi's response are very personal responses to the grace offered to us by God. Jesus would actually teach about them in the New Testament And as we wrap this message up, let me show you that teaching. It is found in Matthew chapter 21, the 33rd verse and following. Why don't you turn there with me? I want you to see this. Matthew 21, 33 through 45. These are Jesus' words. Still some pages turning. I'll give you just a second. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out into the vineyard and killed him. When, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to these tenants? They said to Jesus, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons." Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. When Jesus speaks of the stone the builders rejected, the cornerstone, he is speaking of himself. The cornerstone was the most important stone. It held everything together, every structure held together by the cornerstone. Jesus said, I am the stone that holds everything together. Haven't you heard God talk about it? And haven't you heard him talk about the rejection of the cornerstone? Right now, Jesus is speaking to a group of Jews. They were the tenants. They are the ones that were given the vineyard by the master. And they had rejected the law. They had rejected the prophets. They had beat them and killed them. And now they were rejecting the son. And Jesus says, haven't you heard my father talk about how people were going to reject even me, the cornerstone? But then he goes on to say this, verse 43. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you. And given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone, this is the best part. The one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Those are the two responses to grace. And they are evident in 2 Kings chapter 5. Because you see, Jesus says, like Naaman, those who fall on Jesus, those who fall on the cornerstone, they will be broken. Remember, Naaman lost his temper, then he lost his pride, then he lost his leprosy. He had to go through the whole process in order to be healed. He had to be broken. And every person that has found grace has had to be broken. Every person has found that type of brokenness in order to receive the healing that God offers. When you fall on the stone, you will be broken. And that is a good breaking Because it leads to healing that leads to restoration that leads to an eternal relationship with the creator of the universe. Fall on the stone, trip over it, stumble over it, and crash down on it so that you can be broken. Because if you don't, and this is Jesus' warning, the stone will eventually fall on you. And for those on whom the stone falls, they will be crushed. They will be crushed. And there is no healing after that. For those that reject grace time and time again, when there is no more time, the stone falls on them and they are crushed. That's a disastrous place to be. Naaman fell on the stone and he was healed, broken and healed. Gehazi was crushed. He lost everything, he lost his health, he lost his family. Because God did not hold him guiltless, one person of every generation to follow him, every one of his descendants, every generation, at least one person, would wrestle with the leprosy of Naaman, just like Gehazi did. And he lost his ministry. Because once he was diagnosed with leprosy, he could no longer serve alongside Elisha. That was over. He lost his influence. He lost his meaning. He lost everything. He was crushed because the stone fell on him. You have to ask yourself, which response have you given thus far? Have you stumbled over the stone? Have you fallen on it to the point of brokenness that you might experience healing? Or does it loom over you? That's your question. Why don't you stand and pray with me? Father in heaven, stories like this in the Old Testament seem very Old Testament. They seem judgmental until we really read them for what they are, full of grace full of goodness, full of you. They point us towards your son. We are so grateful for that. I am so grateful for that. I know that there are people here, Lord, that have fallen on you and they have been restored. Just like Naaman, they have been healed. And I know that there are others like Gehazi, that if they do not fall on you, you will fall on them. So I pray they'll take the right steps.